One of the things we don't spend enough time talking about is how hard it is to build a successful business. Bringing an idea to market requires so many factors to align, it can be mind-blowing. So we are going to talk to someone who is a veteran of the startup space so they can tell us what it is really like. So stay tuned. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Future Tech video podcast. The audio version of the podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most of the others. Or you can find it at futr.buzzsprout.com. Today, we're talking with Vast Data CMO and co-founder Jeff Denworth about what it takes to bring a product to market in a competitive industry. We are going to talk about the challenges, compromises, trade-offs, and difficult decisions that go into it. We're also going to talk about the ingredients needed to not just build a great product, but a great company. And we're going to learn a little bit about Vast Data and what makes it tick. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. <laughs> I really appreciate you being on. Thanks for coming. So before we get started and, and, and dig into you know, all the, the, the hot topics of you know, building a business, tell me a little bit about your history and where you're coming from and, and, and how you got to Vast Data. Um, so, so, you know, my background goes back about 20 years in, uh, you could say, distributed systems in storage and file systems and to some extent, cloud computing. Uh, and actually, the kind of the path that my, my whole career um, took was, was started with a phone call I made when I was an inside salesperson, something like two decades ago. <laughs> And I ended up calling um, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which is like, you know, one of the largest supercomputing centers in the world. And I was sure. like, hey, do you guys want to buy some third party memory? And this guy called me back and he said, you know, I, I have like a hundred million dollar machine that I need to upgrade the RAM on. What do you have? And so then I had to learn about uh, how systems work and how all sorts of stuff more than just a memory module worked. Uh, and since that time, I've gone to a number of startups. Um, I was part of a, a, a very large scale file system startup called Cluster File Systems and I went to Data Direct Networks, uh, spent a little bit of time in the cloud at a company called Cterra. Then in 2016, uh, I joined our CEO and our head of R&D and um, we started up Vast Data. So, so uh, you know, for people who aren't familiar with Vast Data, although everybody should be, it's a, it's a, it's a, a new storage company in a in what is essentially a very you know competitive marketplace, um, tell me a little bit about you know what what the vast value proposition is and, and what what was it you know the problem in the market that you saw needed fixing. Sure, sure, yeah, actually that was a, a big consideration. Is you know I kind of um, came to the company and thought about embarking on this mission. Is like are you doing something that's really different that can change things? And so um, vast mission is is ultimately a simple one. It's, it's to simplify storage. And you know that sounds a little bit contrived and I'll break it down a little bit. When we started, we saw um, that there were a lot of flash companies in the marketplace, but all these flash companies were working on making flash systems faster than the ones previous. It was kind of this like arms race of flash storage. Um, and you know at the time, uh, the delta between hard drive uh, based storage from a capacity perspective and flash storage was like 10 to 20 X. And every single customer that we talked to, none of them said we needed something faster. Every one of them said we wanted something cheaper. Yeah. And so we started to think about why that was. Uh, and we realized two things. One is from an operational perspective, 
every day that a customer has to wake up and make a decision about a storage investment where they have to decide on some spectrum between performance and capacity, that's just a compromise that they have to make. And who wants to make a compromise? But more importantly, as we saw kind of the next generation of computing that was on the horizon, things like uh, GPU computing, AI, machine learning, big data, all the algorithms that run on these new systems, they only get better when they get exposed to more data. And so if your data is organized in some pyramid of infrastructure where your, your largest data sets are in your slowest storage, well, that doesn't help an organization do anything. And so VAST is basically um, a, a extinction level event for the hard drive. That's one of the big kind of things that we're aiming at. And, and the other thing that we're doing is we're helping customers realize that uh, a scalable storage platform can be a consolidation uh, opportunity where they can now start to put all their applications, all their data into one scale out pool of flash. Uh, and that can also be transformative. So you've got this idea and, and I assume you did some market research and, and things like that. You know, what's involved in, in like taking that from idea to a business? My first week of work, I had to give a presentation to the board about what the five-year strategy was, and um, <laughs> that was fun. Fortunately, I, I, you know, I come from the space, so I, I knew some of the tricks. Um, but, but you know, earlier you kind of alluded to the fact that you know storage is a mature market, and you know, not a lot of people get excited about storage every day. But when we looked at it, um, the first thing we did is we looked at what's going on in the cloud, and we said, okay. Where are the disruptions that are happening here at the architectural level, not at the delivery model level? Um, and how can we build a system that uh, can be competitive against what customers would expect to get from the cloud? And the first thing is uh, a concept had to be different enough, different enough where a customer didn't have some sort of analogous experience in the cloud. Mm -hmm. But the second thing is that um, in order to build a business, you know, I, I have this kind of fervent belief that it can't just be about cool technology because cool technology in and of itself doesn't compel like a market disruption. But on the flip side, if you have cool technology at a time where there's an application disruption, then you can actually combine these two to, to work towards building a large independent business. And in our case, you know, I, I kind of looked at our, the space that we we're operating in and as a, as a very scalable flash storage company, we, um, we focus on the file and the object storage space. Here, you have companies like NetApp and Isilon that have, have kind of lorded over the market for the better part of 30 years. And as we looked at their business, it was really generational, right? NetApp emerged at a time when open systems were a thing. And so mm -hmm. now you've got this network storage, it's easy to use. And then Isilon came in around the 2000s and said, well, maybe people want greater than 16 terabyte volumes and we can build this out of nodes that were simple to scale and then they had a generation of, of kind of runway. And when I talk about generations, I'm not talking about hardware generations. I'm talking about like whole administration team generations, right? right. People that survive multiple refreshes of hardware. And so in our, in our case, we have something that's much more scalable, much more affordable, much more resilient. But it also comes at a time where, where you know, we kind of saw NetApp came in in the open systems era. Isilon came in with large volumes at a time where people were dealing with um, content and web 2.0 data, VAST could be um, kind of hallmarked by the fact that AI will propel customers to, to want to relate and use their data much more differently than they have in the past. If you think about your average AI model, it just kind of randomly trolls through all sorts of data. And if that data isn't on flash, your, your next generation processors are going to have a really bad day. Mm -hmm. 
So it, it really is that combination of uh, a, a market disruption coupled with disruptive technology. And if you can put the two together, you have an opportunity to succeed. It's still not guaranteed, but there's a chance. Yeah, I mean, I you know, we always say that in chaos, there's opportunity. And I think when you're talking about those kind of paradigm shifts, there's certainly a lot of chaos that can breed breed opportunity. And and I think the, the thing that's interesting that you're kind of talking about is sort of that, you know, bringing in a disruptive technology. But I think in, in some regards, it's sort of a disruptive business model that that's really kind of upending a lot of things as well. Right. We did introduce a new business model just a few weeks ago um, that we call Gemini. And here, um, you know, we, we sell relatively large minimum systems. Our, our, our minimum unit is like 700 terabytes. Half the customers that we talk to, like 700 terabytes is like all of their data. And they don't want to invest in all that just to, to, just to get a taste. And so if you think about the last 20 to 30 years of, of storage businesses, every storage company has been measured by a, a profit and loss statement that's basically driven by hardware, hardware refreshes. Right. Every time a storage company sells hardware, they make additional money, and that's how they kind of achieve and derive their value. And so <clears throat> at the low end of our business, we found that if a customer wanted something like 100 or 200 terabytes, we would have to go and kind of slice up the system into a bunch of licenses and then worry about that P&L, and that kind of didn't feel right. But then on the high end of the business, you know, in terms of disruptions, obviously cloud is a, is a massive disruption. But we find that um, the, the organizations that will be left standing going forward are those that really value infrastructure as a competence. And so they're buying a lot of stuff. And typically, they're also trying to negotiate the prices underneath that like standard P&L ratio that I was talking about earlier. And so we said, OK, well, what if we just got the hardware off the books? And what if we just had our sales team compensated for software? And that software was kind of independent of the hardware um, life cycle that a customer would, would expect. Now, that sounds a lot like software-defined storage, but that's not what I'm talking about. Right. And the reason for that is that um, I remember I actually had a, uh, I interviewed a guy who worked for a software-defined storage company when I started, and he just kind of sat there and he's like, tell me what it's like to sell an appliance. And, and he was just having so much trouble with all the different permutations that a customer wanted to deal with. And, and when we looked at it, we said, okay, well, um, what if our manufacturer just sell, sold the hardware appliance that we've been selling to our customers? And what if we could continue our QA investments around a single hardware platform? And this for us has really be in, been instrumental because if you think about all these software-defined storage initiatives, at the end of the day, um, companies like Dell and NetApp and Pure are still selling appliances that are selling circles around these technologies. And the customers are voting with their wallet. They're saying, we want something that's simple. And so if you can give those customers the ability to buy software and buy software on their agenda and then amortize hardware and refresh hardware according to their agenda, mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, make it simple for them to deploy, then it's kind of the best of all worlds. So we call this concept Gemini. Uh, and it's basically, you can now buy um, infrastructure like a hyperscale company. You can actually buy it actually below cost because we're kind of aggregating the buying power of the whole vast customer community. But it gets deployed like an enterprise in the way that you don't have to worry about storage. So um, we, we, th that's actually an interesting thing about building the business. You know, a lot of people have tried to make this jump to software. Um, and, and we made the decision on February 1st of this year to just make a hard cut. And 
Um, some companies have taken two, three years in the public markets to make this transition. We just said, nope, we got to just, you know, uh, draw the line and, and you will not cross the line uh, to the sales team. And they've been surprisingly receptive to the concept. Uh, and we've 5X'd our numbers year over year. Uh, so we feel like we're doing the right things and the customers like just the additional economic advantage. I think the cloud has driven a lot of changes in, in business methodologies and, and delivery. And, you know, um, that sort of OPEX subscription kind of model, you know, people have really focused on, right? And, and that doesn't obviously play well into the hardware, you know, m model, which is, uh, you know, based on the ideas of you know, these kind of continual refreshes. But what we've seen uh, to, to counter that is a lot of storage companies trying to go to these evergreen models where you just you know, continue to renew your maintenance contracts and you get new hardware and then that kind of keeps rolling things around. But, you know, I think the, the idea of, uh, you know, the software piece is an interesting one and, and to focus on that. And, and you know, a, as a new company, you're, you're kind of limited in the directions you can go and the, and the things you, you can take on. And hardware manufacturing is a very capital intensive business. Um, so you can, you know, you can leverage your assets in a different way. And, and this is a really interesting idea that you're kind of aggregating buying power to, to give your customers kind of the best of both worlds there. And, and, you know, one of the undercurrents of this discussion is like, how do you build a business, right? right? And so a lot of what we focus on, both from an architectural perspective and with respect to building our business is like, what's important, And what we concluded is that gross margin ultimately isn't the measure that companies uh, will be measured on as they bring products out to the street, right? Amazon is running, Amazon, like .com, right. is running at one of the worst gross margins <laughs> of the retail industry in history, yet they've, they've dominated an industry. And so we think about how we manage our business with respect to how can we build sustainable cash flow and how can our products develop uh, uh, cash flow streams that support our mission. And so we never worry about gross margin, but we do worry about what is the cash that we get from a customer experience. Uh, and the nice thing is that, you know, um, you know, if we don't make great margins on a specific deal, oftentimes those customers have bought something in the order of 10 or 20 or 30 petabytes. And you can make up for that problem in the same way that Jeff Bezos does with volume. And so focusing on what actually matters as opposed to what people say you should be measured by is one of the kind of the key takeaways here. Uh, you don't have to build a business like everybody else. You just have to build your business the right way. You know, what, what I think a lot of companies miss oftentimes is that, that, that the customer is the king. The people who are buying it, who are making that decision to, to purchase your thing, are the only people who really matter. So to, did you guys, you know, like when you came to market with your product, um, did you do uh, a lot of market research? I mean, how, how did how did you get those answers? So uh, I told you the story earlier of a young, ambitious inside sales guy. You know, there's still a part of me that um, that was there when we started the business. And so, you know, I'm I'm a sales guy turned marketer, turned product manager, and then kind of all the way back around. And when I started you know, we just had this idea on a piece of paper and I was the only one on the go-to-market team. I was the only one in the United States and I'm sitting around thinking, okay, what should I do? And so I just started picking up the phone. And over the course of the first um, two and a half years of operation, we had something like 500 sales calls. And I, in, you know, when you don't have a product to sell, 
you're still kind of helping understand your own product through pitching it to customers and seeing what, what sticks. And every one of these conversations would be written down and funneled back to the R&D team. And so by the time we were done, we had you know just awesome market research. And we also had a huge pipeline of beta customers. And we had uh, an outsized amount of revenue ready for us by the time we were G, uh, GA because we were selling the whole time. And so you know, we've been fortunate to have some really spectacular customers that, that started with us and, and have continued to buy. Um, and, and those are the customers that ultimately define the product. Uh, you know, we, we, we kind of said, okay, it could be a hyper-converged product. It could be a backup product. It could be a data lake. And so we tried all those pitches. And then the one that landed was, okay, let's build uh, a really disruptive scale-out file and object storage system that could be extended to support all sorts of other different protocols and access methods ranging from VMware to containers to big data and, and beyond. So you've raised $263 million to date, and you just, just completed a big raise, right? We did. Um, but you didn't really need the money because you, we don't. you're generating profit, right? Uh, well, we, we're generating cash flow. So we're cash flow positive, cash flow positive. Um, okay. which means that, you know, the, the money that we receive from customers, typically they pay a few extra years of support. And um, we're not burning cash is the takeaway, uh, even though we're tripling our business every year. And so um, actually, it was one of our competitors on Twitter the other day that said, this is a pretty interesting strategy that Vast has because um, they're going out and um, talking about their customer uh, momentum, and that's creating investor enthusiasm, which results in a large valuation and uh, a very low-cost raise. And I'll explain what that means in a second. And that that investment activity ends up turning into customer enthusiasm. And so there's this flywheel effect of customer adoption and investment that happens um, where we actually use investment as a marketing vehicle more than you know, uh, a, a sustaining function for the company. So when we, um, when we went into our Series D round, uh, we had $140 million of cash on the balance sheet. So that's all of our Series C, that's all of our Series B. Why would we take another $80 million or so? Well, it cost us about 2% of the company valuation to triple the valuation to $3.7 billion. Now, if you look at our competitors and take out their kind of sh their cash and short-term investments, we're worth some companies that are nearly 20 times our size in terms of headcount and revenue. And the reason for that is that we've broken this trade-off between the amount of capital that you need to build a business and um, building a very high growth organization. And like I said earlier, it's like focus on what matters. And so what we realize is that what matters is, is getting to sustainability. And we had this architecture that is designed for scale. And so instead of kind of trying to go out and blanket the marketplace with um, $100,000 systems to every small to medium-sized business that you could get, your, your, um, could get on the phone, we said, okay, let's go sell to the biggest companies that can cut the biggest checks and pay the least amount of total commission because we'll have a select number of salespeople that are making really good commission but um, the, the cost of sale is just so much less with Vast. And so we've been fortunate to have customers that place initial investments that are nearly $10 million. And you don't need a lot of those before the, the numbers start to get really interesting. 
we work with a lot of startups. And one of the things that we see that's so incredibly value is that early customer feedback, getting into early POCs, getting early customers, whether or not you're making money on it or not, and getting in there, but, but, but working on the product with them so that you're bringing them along for the ride. And then when you get to the point where you're ready to go and ready to sell this product at, you know, full speed, you know, they're there to, they're there to, to buy it from you. Right. And, and POCs are funny because there's an inclination to go to the best customers and get a POC. And the best customer in a customer's mind is the one that can spend the most money or brings the right. most prestige. But, you know, in order to get things done, you need to go to the customers that have the most time and the most insight. And they may not be the most uh, prestigious logo that you can think of, but stop what you're doing if you're going to call like a tier one investment bank and think you're going to get any of their productive time and spend some time with people that just love storage and they get paid to, to uh, in our case, storage, and, and they get paid to just be smart about stuff and they have the time to spend. And so for that reason, we have like terrific nonprofits that we work with. We have um, terrific uh, research centers that we work with. Some of the best um, uh, hedge funds and quantitative trading shops are actually really collaborative um, and they're wicked smart. Like these are people that, that get paid to know. And so the other thing I would say is, you know, if you have any other startups that are listening to this, and it's probably not revolutionary in 2021, but just fire up a big Slack channel for all your customers and get the whole company in it. So we have like customer channels where all of the R&D team, all the support team, all the marketing team, all the executive team is just watching conversations. And we're not like big brother watching. We're just waiting to see where we can help and where we can get insight. Um, and that close connection, you know, even though some of our engineers are 10,000 miles away from our customers, we have customers in Australia, they're talking to those customers every day as if they're right next door. And so technology also helps. I think these, these new platforms, they do facilitate uh, a closer engagement. When we look at companies, we always evaluate, you know, is the idea a solid, good, good idea? Um, you know, do they have a good sales and marketing strategy and do they have the right people in place? Can you talk a little bit about um, how you've built the culture there and, and the people that you've attracted and how you attracted them, what you focused on? Culture, I think, is an evolving, uh, it's an evolving dynamic as you grow the team. And I, I always say that culture is just the synthesis of the team that you've accumulated as you continue to grow the business. And you try really hard not to hire assholes. Um, and, and so... That said, there, there are a few kind of um, kind of key tenets of our culture that, that were started very early on. Uh, one is around um, transparency. So every person in the company can have a conversation with any other person in the company about whatever they'd like to. Uh, and it's a very open forum. Now, they might not always agree, but the, the mandate is that they're transparent and they're forthcoming about whatever's being asked of them. And so... Now everybody knows what they're getting into. Everybody knows what their mission is, and we all know what we're going, where we're going. And, and there's no, nobody, nobody thinks that there's somebody behind the curtain that's pulling the strings because everybody knows exactly what's going on. Um, now the second one is uh, is one that kind of got instilled into the team as we started selling, which I think is is extreme customer centricity. And so the roadmap is driven by customers. The um, R&D team is driven by customers. The marketing team is driven by customers. Every single, uh, every single part of the business every day works with our customers. Um, and it's something that we can do, by the way, 
as a function of having that large system selling motion where we can just develop that really intimate relationship because we're not trying to like mass market the product just yet. Um, and then the third thing uh, I think has, has kind of started to um, enter into the, the system as we, um, as, as we move to our second wave of, of kind of selling uh, as we go from, let's say, $100 million of annualized sales to many hundred millions of dollars of annualized sales. And this is one around accountability and encouragement where the teams are now all trying to equally lift each other up and they're understanding that the core as opposed to any one individual is what makes the success and everybody can depend upon each other. And to watch teams start to work with each other is, is actually a pretty fun dynamic. Uh, and it comes from having uh, managers, not just in the sales organization, but in the R&D organization and the support organization, the marketing team that, that really know how to, um, to, to kind of grow teams. So I, I would say that first wave was more resourceful in terms of like just getting the absolute core things done uh, as efficiently as possible. And the second team that's come in is, is now layering on the scalability engine that can help us grow to a thousand people and beyond. You know, you, you said something that I've heard once before. Uh, when I when I was in, you know, building my own companies, I had a friend who was an artistic director for a theater company. And he said, you know, the way I cast a show is I just don't hire assholes. Because <laughs> yeah. he said, you know, if you hire assholes, no matter how good they are, they're going to bring the whole thing down. And it's, exactly. it's the team that matters, not the individual performance necessarily, right? I don't know if this is a PG-13 podcast that we're on here, but <laughs> I've got all sorts of worse words that I can use too. <laughs> I think that's a really interesting and important piece of it that I think a lot of people miss because they think, well, this guy's the, the greatest salesperson that's ever lived. Let's get him on and we'll be successful. But then he mm -hmm. destroys the, you know, the, the culture of the company and you're sitting there like, what, what just happened, right? I, I remember interviewing a guy and at the end of the conversation, the very, very end, I said, you know, I think you could really, um, I think you could really do a good job here. And, and, you know, I'm going to go give my recommendation to the team. And he, and he just looked at me and he goes, of course I can do a good job. And he just like laughed at me <laughs> at that point. I was like, you're out. If yeah. there was an ejector seat on the other side of zoom, that that's a feature request for zoom. I would have definitely hit it. Yeah, there's there's this there is a concept of a good customer, you know, and I think sometimes salespeople we get so excited about a win or a logo that we forget that wait a minute, this customer sucks, you know, and you know, after me doing this for 23 years, it's taken me, you know, Chris has seen the evolution, but it's like, you know what? No soup for you. I I don't I don't I don't want this business, you know, go call somebody else. And I, and, and that now me not spending all those hours and then getting Chris and the rest of the team involved causing just negative energy, you know, now that's just bad business, you know, and all your, yeah. you're, you're trying to change a bad situation into good instead find the good ones and just, just you know, the special ones and nurture them, you know, just take care of them, you know, just do the simple things right. I agree that no assholes policy can apply to your customers as well. And it should. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it yeah. should. Absolutely. Because yeah. one of the other things that you hit on too, I, I completely agree with is 
we all as salespeople want to go after the big dog. You know, we want the we want the the customer that has a hundred hundred ten million dollar IT budget, and we want to get you know ten percent of that and blah blah blah. You know, yeah. and maybe it's just because I'm getting old, but like I, I just don't. It's really gotten to a point, and I think where you what you guys are doing is going to be important because your that culture when you have those awesome customers, then your team wants to come you know come to work every day. And they get excited about Vast. You know, they get excited about the customer meetings. And and that excitement is what, you know, it's that what I would call the unfair advantage that you can have over your competition is your guys coming to work every day just stoked, you know, to go help another customer, go fix a problem, you know, go work on a proposal, whatever it might be, you know. So good for you. At first, I assume you you had a little bit more of a, a hardware strategy in mind, perhaps, um, and you and you're looking at, you know, this is going to take some money to build, and you you know, at some point you're in a company and you're faced with that, like, do we, you know, take a small amount of angel investment and kind of bootstrap our company and and grow to profitability, or do we take money, or you know, how how do we approach the market and how fast do we need to go, you know, what what's some of the thinking that went into some of those decisions for you guys. And, and the, the, the discussion about how to take money is, is typically polarized against the question of how much ownership are you giving up for, uh, you know, for, for, to support the, the funding of your, your business plans. But um, what, what we see is that we don't just think of our investors as, um, as kind of like a piggy bank. We think of them as consultants or, you know, a, a collection of individuals that mostly all have been company operators at some point in their past and have moved to to the venture capital market. We've been fortunate to also have a few strategic investors, customers like Goldman Sachs and, and Dell and NVIDIA, who were actually still in the game. But the point is that, you know, if, if you think about them as exclusively a source of money, you're missing the fact that these guys are out building some of the world's largest businesses in real time alongside your business. And so there's just a collective set of learnings, um, but they're also a very calming influence on the management team that, that tends to think in, in short term and investors have a very long term uh, time horizon that they work with. And so, you know, in, in the early days, we were talking to our investors just as much as we were talking to the internal team for reasons that they had a lot of answers and they had a lot of perspective and they were just great to work with. Now, uh, as time goes on, you kind of you, you do start to think about okay, how much ownership are you giving up, and these types of things. And, and to your point, hardware is a capital business, but um, we managed to to kind of work out a, a hardware management model that didn't really incur a ton of impact on the business. Uh, and and so when we started, we took fifteen million dollars of funding from from two investors, uh, eighty three North, uh, which is the former Israeli branch of Greylock, and Norwest Venture Partners, which is a California VC. Um, and we took the money a to just kind of get the guidance on how to build the business. And the nice thing about that is we got some funds for um, for supporting our hardware agenda, which wasn't huge uh, as a consequence. And as time goes on. Um, you want to get to sustainability by partnering with those individuals that are equally not interested in diluting themselves over the longest term. So, um, so here, you know, the 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 Series A and the seed investors are typically extremely well aligned with the motivations that the management team has. Uh, they want to see the business grow in a healthy fashion, and they want to make sure that you know you're not 
completely diluting the business to get there. And so we used a, a statement when we started, uh, and we probably used it for the first three to four years, is, which is we never want to spend a billion dollars to make a billion dollars. Uh, and it's funny, you know, on the topic of like things that people expect you to do, I remember some uh, conversations with early potential investors who were like, well, you're going to have to, um, you know, you're going to have to lever up and you're going to have to take a ton of money to build this business. And we thought about it. We said, we actually don't need to, if you can think about doing the, the essential things in an efficient manner and you can build a product that makes a really outsized amount of impact, right? And if you think about a lot of the technology waves where companies have become very large concerns, typically they've been punctuated by a number of companies competing in a space. Right, I'll take the backup wars, for example, like Rubrik and Cohesity are in some respects just trying to outspend each other. They have to, to kind of keep their message above um, the, the noise. Um, and in our case, we sit on an island of one. We're the first company in history that's trying to break the performance and capacity trade-off, and we don't have competition. So we can kind of operate in the market where we need to. We, can, we have an innovative platform that's providing competitive advantage, but it's also a capital advantage. Uh, and so as we get older, you know, the, the dynamics for how we think about investment change, as I mentioned, now we think about investment more as like a marketing vehicle. It, it helps us create a, a, a measure of our performance over time. Um, and to that end, I think we're now demonstrating to very large customers that we're here to stay. And, you know, in the selling motion, we'll show you our balance sheet, which is not something that typically happens for a startup. Yeah, we've we've heard you know, stories from some companies about, you know, the challenges of working with investors and the demands that investors can put on a company. Um, and, and, and you, you've kind of got an interesting mix because you're, you're, you're financed by VCs and you've got industry players in the mix. So it, it, it it's, it's, I'm, I'm sure you're getting a lot of different types of feedback. I mean, wh what would you say to somebody who's just, you know, terrified of taking that investor money because of what it might bring with it? Well, the, you know, we sat from a pretty good position. Uh, Renan, our CEO, uh, he was previously the head of R&D at Extreme.io, and, and that was like a really successful endeavor in, in relative terms. So, you know, he had a great idea and the, and the investors were ready to just cut a check. Um, you know, the first thing I would say is that that principle that we talked about, about employees and about customers now equally applies to investors. You don't <laughs> want to have assholes on your board. And so, Take the time to, to really get to know and understand the people that are going to be directly involved in understanding your finances and understanding how you're building your business and find people that understand what you're doing. They understand the things that you don't yet understand and, and make sure that you're partnered with them, even if it's at a discount. Like some people get this, this kind of notion where you have to go and you have to get the best possible valuation during a funding round. Well, if you find an investor that can help you grow three times faster than some other investor, the, the amount of valuation that you made in that previous round, at the end of the day, it won't matter. Um, and so, you know, when we look at it, it it's, it's like if you have the choice, then choose for, um, choose for a, an individual or a set of individuals that can really help you grow your business. And there's also a strategic element to this. Surrounding yourself with investors that are kind of like in the market and they're players, they can help introduce you to other customers and other partners much quicker than kind of boutique investors were, are that are just trying to be opportunistic. And so the, the biggest temptation is to go for valuation. And if you can resist that and go for long-term growth, the, it's, it's always the better choice. 
<laughs> I think that's uh, that's exceptional advice because I think that is what burns a lot of people. And it, and it could even be, you know, what, you know, people who don't have operational experience or don't understand mm-hmm. the operations of business that, you know, push, you know, bad choices. Um, you know, just people who, you know, and sometimes there's just straight up personality conflicts, right? And that can be there disastrous. Are. There um, are. And, and, and so the temptation is I need this money because I need this valuation. But you know, an investment is not a check you can cut instantaneously. So it doesn't matter in some respects within a, a standard deviation what the valuation is. It's just a point in time measurement as you get towards the larger goal of building a sustainable independent business. You know, one of the other things that I've seen companies struggle with is they wait too long to raise that money, you know, so that then they don't have the freedom of, of, of some of that choice as well. Well, so we see the opposite end of that spectrum. Uh-huh which is they wait too long to get their costs in check such Mm. that they find themselves needing money sooner than they expected. And so you can look at that one from both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. You've kind of talked a little bit about your, uh, your equity philosophy, right? Um, Do you have like a sort of strategic plan with how do you manage your equity and what the, what the end state's going to look like? So investment rounds are actually good opportunities to checkpoint that, that that kind of level of thinking. Um, and, and when we started in the earliest days, we, we basically developed a plan to triple every year in terms of our business. And we, 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 um, we founded that plan on a, a exceptionally good level of capital efficiency that we thought we could get to through this big system selling motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then every year we take another funding round just as kind of at this checkpoint. Uh, we haven't spent the last couple, but it is an opportunity to check in on that business thesis as well and our long-term growth trajectories. And the plans that we made two years ago were now hitting pretty much on the mark with respect to what we're doing today. Um, the big question mark, by the way, was COVID, mm. right? Uh, that was a wrench that was thrown into every business's operations. And at that point, you know, I, I remember when we, um, we closed our Series C round, we hadn't even met certain investors and um, we didn't know which way the world was going to was going to end up with respect to 2020. Uh, and you know, it was fortunate that we had a lean business that we didn't have to automatically correct. We didn't take any government loans or anything like that. Um, and it just came from this kind of like uh, independent philosophy that we maintain. But uh, yeah, it can go any way, and and you kind of have to think about sustainability at every point. Figuring out evaluation is hard as it is, I think. Um, and figuring it out during a pandemic has to be really kind of challenging, I would think. What, what goes into, you know, determining your valuation and, and, and what, how, you, how you pursue that? Uh, I think it's really three to four vectors of measurement. Uh, the first is people start to just get like a gut feel of like, okay, what's, what's the revenue growth of this company? And uh, either you're a, if you're a capital uh, equipment company or you're a, a SaaS-based company running in the cloud, the first thing they do is they net out anything that goes into cost of goods. So, you know, Snowflake, for example, has a ton of cogs in uh, just different cloud platforms okay. that they run on. And, you know, hardware vendors, they have uh, stuff that they kick up to Intel and companies like this. And so that already goes out the window. You don't get any credit for that. Uh, and then the second thing you, they look at is, okay, well, you know, how are how are people valuing this business uh, and and what's the what's the general growth trend look like at the top line? The second thing that they look at is what is the customer dynamic? And what I mean here is, 
are customers buying and then expanding their investments? And there's a very popular investment term that's being used right now called net revenue retention or net dollar retention. People call it one of two. Uh, and NRR basically means when um, you start the year, you have a certain amount of annualized business with a customer. When you end the year, is it more or less? And if it's less uh, on average, then you have negative NRR. If it's more, uh, you have positive NRR. And so, you know, we're seeing customers buy uh, three times more than their initial investment. And when people look at that, it's like, okay, well, we're still in the earliest stages of this vast thing. And when they get their systems on the floor, then customers just start gobbling up so much more. That becomes a really good measurement. Uh, and then you look at the expenses of the company. Like, what does it cost to actually go and, and push this business into the market? And uh, capital efficiency, low uh, OPEX, uh, low general and administration charges uh, within the company. These are all like, uh, also known as SGNA. These are all things that get measured as a, a positive element. And then the fourth is the TAM. So total addressable market, yep. like how big of a space are they operating in? Are they going to be bound by that, that space for some period of time? Do they, do they see some sort of like extended series of plays where they can grow their TAM really big and just kind of flourish in a really wide open market? And if you have those four things, you've got just a great story. You know, you've done a couple things, many things, right? But I mean, there's a couple things that, you know, sort of jump out, you know, sort of that early you know, customer centric approach, getting them involved in, in that, that, that piece. I assume that led to early in your life cycle deals, which okay. helps to drive that, that valuation. And I think, you know, the one thing that's, that's also interesting about this is, you know, you look at the TAM, you know, for example, and, you know, we've seen this just enormous growth in cloud. Um, and, you know, and, and, but at the same time, the, the needs and requirements for storage are just absolutely growing off the charts, right? So, you know, like, what is the TAM of the storage market? I mean, I have a hard time wrapping my head around that, right? If you added the backup space and you added the cloud vendors, you could probably get somewhere between 50 to $60 billion a year right now. Now, cloud revenue is a really, um, it, it's, a, it's a very deceiving number, right? Because uh, I remember there was a Wikibon report the other week that said something to the effect of AWS is the biggest storage business in the world. They're like approaching $10 billion in, in business. Uh, and then if you think about that, it's not just you know storage systems, it's also the service management and all the ad additional services that AWS puts on top of storage to make it a managed service. Uh, and if you if you distill down to like what an analogous product would be from a company like Dell, you would find that AWS's number is much lower, and then the the delta is their margin and uh, the services dollars. So nonetheless, they're doing a great job. Um, but I think that that does cloud the the metrics a little bit. And the interesting thing that we're watching now is that you have this dynamic where customers are kind of working their way into the cloud as they realize that they either can't hire or they're not operating at a level of critical mass. And then you have other customers that are working their way out of the cloud when they've graduated to cloud maturity and realized that they didn't want to basically pay for the, the cloud tax. I got to think, you know, when we look at um, some of the growth in other markets, you know, around like kind of edge computing and things like that, and you have the introduction, you know, of of 5G into the mix, which is going to, you know, expand the amount of telemetry that's probably coming in into uh, organizations and the required 
storage for all of that. Um, you know, it, it just, it seems like there's just a lot of, um, upward pressure on, on storage, um, in, in that, in the market, right? This is true. And I think that, um, cloud storage in particular has been historically a loss leader. Like remember when S3 came out, everybody's like, Whoa, like, uh, it was like three cents a gigabyte per month. That's like crazy. Um, and then, you know, along the way, uh, the prices stopped moving in the same way that they did previously. And so what was once a loss leader has now become like the cash cow for some of these organizations. And, you know, there was a great report that came out from Andreessen Horowitz the other day that said, you know, the, the, the cloud is very paradoxical. Like one, it helps startups really make a really strong jumpstart into viability and to scale. But at the same time as when you get to scale, it holds back the market value that a startup or a storage company, or I should say a software company can achieve because you're just kicking up the additional uh, like OPEX dollars to Amazon as opposed to keeping them for yourself. And so they estimated that there's something like $500 billion of unrealized market capitalization because of the, the tax that is being imposed upon customers by the public cloud. So it's really a weird dynamic going on right now where you know people don't necessarily know how to play it. But I think the, the prescription at the end of this article was like, okay, well, maybe the cloud vendors will cut their, their margins down, right? But if they're operating at like 40% and they go to 20%, that means they need to double their business to, say, to make the same amount of cash. And I think it's an almost impractical expectation on these organizations like to imagine just a supernaturally doubling of, of, of Amazon's or, or uh, Microsoft's business faster than what they're doing today. It's, it's going to be really tricky. So it's a great place for organizations that, that need uh, people to care for their infrastructure and people that aren't staffed to, to operate at scale, or maybe they don't need to operate at scale. But it's a tough place when you get to that scalability tipping point. Yeah, I mean, it's great for agility and flexibility reasons. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it is it is ultimately expensive. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think we're starting to see a little bit of, too, is, around the edges is kind of a, a little bit of um, boutique cloud kind of rising up. And I can see, you know, an emerging, you know, competitive market space in the cloud arena that, that may drive some of those dynamics as well. I mean, obviously, you've got players that are so entrenched and so huge, it's going to be really difficult to unseat them. But, you know... There, there's opportunity still in that space, I think. I agree. I, I think the thing that um, I, I watch with customers is a lot of their decisions to move to cloud computing platforms is they want to refactor their codes and they want to get modern. Yeah. And the best place to do that is at the, you know, the kind of the cloud bazaar where you have all the tools there. Right. But those same tools have been largely proliferated out to be equally applied to other kind of like tier two or boutique cloud vendors and also on premises. And so where it was like a, a limited set of DevOps tools that you could use 10 years ago outside of those environments, they're now kind of democratized. And to the point on agility, I, I love this quote where it's like, I talked to a CIO and he's like, well, I, you know, I need to be agile because time is money. And, and I said, you know what, what's also money, what's also money is money. And, you know, <laughs> if you're spending like, you know, five X more to do your job, just to save on a few hires, is that the right decision for your business? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we see so problematic for so many organizations is that enablement gap. I mean, like just having the people to do the work to to or, or qualified and skilled 
um, to do that. And I think, you know, you're right. A lot of people shift to the cloud because so many of those resources are there, right? And, and people focus on different things. So it's, it's also whole disciplines of IT are, are starting to be kind of um, obsoleted by the fact that there's just buttons that you can push that are easy. And, you know, your, your farm league of, of administrators that you would have previously kind of cultivated uh, five, 10 years ago, that, that farm league isn't there anymore. People are all focusing on like blockchain and, you know, weed companies. <laughs> well, something to be said for that. Um, I know you love blockchain. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, like the NFT thing too is just like the craziness around that is just blows my mind. I think it might be done. NFTs. Uh, somebody just called the death knell on them the other day. I said, oh, that was a big waste of time." So, I just want to just touch for a second on um, you know growth and sustainability because that's a big mm-hmm. big piece for you. You guys, you know. Yeah maintaining a, a pace of growth that's, you know, fairly significant, um, you know, and, and there's a lot of trade-offs you have to make to, to maintain that kind of growth. You know, could you speak a little bit to your philosophy around that? It's actually not really a trade-off. It's, it's driving yourself to have the right insights. Uh, and, you know, everybody you're hiring into a company has an accumulated set of experiences. They've all been told throughout the jobs that they've had previously that this is how you do things. Mm-hmm. And if nobody challenges that idea, then they may think, okay, well, I need to do my job. So I'm just going to do what my, I did at my last job. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're kind of like, you know, we're not all spring chickens here, right? I've been doing this for 20 years. And, and so I have my own preconceptions about how to build companies. And the key thing is, is, is not to make trade-offs around like what you can and cannot do. It's just to do the things that you only should do. Mm. And so that's like such a fundamental um, gut check that most employees go through because they have to think, is what I'm doing actually moving the needle? And if they don't understand what the needle is or they don't understand where it is, then you've got some major problems. So that notion of transparency is really helpful not only because these individuals, they get to see the, the decisions that get made every day towards that efficiency goal, but then they understand where the needle is and they can make decisions themselves that equally get you there. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. And I think, I think that's a very tricky thing for a lot of companies to do. So. It's very hard. Yeah. It's very hard to hire somebody that you want to be super happy and you want to be super successful. And they get here and, and you have to say, yeah, but that's not how this works uh, because they're, they're just so enthusiastic and you want them to stay enthusiastic, but sometimes they need to be reprogrammed. I would love to hear from you on, you know, you, you just talked about making some of those very important decisions of like what you need to do, what you should do, what you have to do, all of those things, right? Um, how does the reseller community go into your go-to-market? And by the way, I am not trying to, I, th- this is completely outside of our day job. So I am not like soliciting like- so Be as brutally honest yeah, as you want. Exactly. Because I think, <laughs> I, I, I really- I, Forget it tomorrow. Yeah, because, because, because I, I, I have some of my own opinions on it too. Um, but I would love to get get your thoughts on wh- what are you guys, where are you guys at right now in terms of your strategy? So uh, it's funny, there, there were a few kind of key go-to-market elements that I, I tried to lay down um, before we hired a sales team, and some of them were foolish. But one of the things that we thought about is, okay, let's have like four sales engineers per every salesperson. <laughs> and let's just go and, and facilitate um, 
a broad selling motion that was driven by the channel. And the channel, you know, in principle is, is just awesome because what you have are the ability to extend the capabilities of your sales team by two to three orders of magnitude if you do a reasonably good job. But the, the most important thing that I've learned um, through, through uh, at least this push that we're, we're making with the channel, and Vast is a very channel-centric business. We put all of our business through the channel, is that um, you can't expect more from a channel partner than what they're willing to give, right? And channel partners always have multiple vendors that they work with. Uh, resellers have allegiances to other partners that have already brought you business and you've brought them business and you've just partnered with specific accounts. Um, and so what, what we try not to do is to put too high of an expectation on our partners, because if you've never sold Vast before, and if you've never seen, you know, Bob or Susie before they've come into your office and said, Hey, you know, this is an awesome idea. It's, it's not going to take off without, you know, a lot of trust building and a lot of time. Mm. Uh, but I think the, the bigger thing is that um, it needs to, two things have to happen. One is the channel community needs to understand that we can only help them. And so we try to do everything, right? All we expect is a meeting, an introduction into a deal, and we will run everything else and make sure you get paid on the back end. Uh, and then if you see two or three of those and you say, oh, I can do that myself, go for it. And we have channel partners that have done that. Um, but the second consideration is that we need to we need to make sure that the channel partner, the channel community, I should say at large, fears and respects us. And what I mean here is that we can't be overly dependent upon our partners for reasons that um, if those partners decide next day to stop selling our product, we have no business. And so every day our team is out trying to make its own presence, its own market, and to get its story told into the customers that we ultimately want to transact with. And then we're ultimately happy to bring in uh, our trusted channel partner or a customer's trusted channel partner mm -hmm. to go and facilitate that transaction, kind of build a long-term relationship with that customer. But unless that fear is there and unless that trust is there, and unless it's so easy for you to work with us that it just it doesn't take up any of your time, I, I don't think it works. <laughs> and so we, we've had um, we've had some people come in uh, and and they've really scratched their head about building a channel strategy because they kind of came in and said we need to pick these big channel partners that have huge commitments to all these other companies, and we just need to give them all our deals, give them guaranteed margin, and then give them all our leads. And I'm looking at this saying, well, that's not building a channel partner. That's just like you know, going and prostituting yourself to somebody and hoping that you feel good at the end of the day. <laughs> and so we, we just, we don't do it like that for reasons that, you know, it, it should be a two-way street. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to find um, account teams out there that are going to be progressive, that are really educating themselves about, you know, about VAST or whatever the, the technology trends are, whatever the newest started, what's going on in the market. You know, I'm addicted to this stuff, right? So Chris and I, this is easy, right? Like this is like every day, this is a seven, yeah. 20, 24 by seven operation. <laughs> we just love, love it, but not everyone does. And so uh, where I see that it's worked really well is when, um, startups like yourself partner up with specific account teams in certain regions, the ones that actually get it. And I think that's probably going to be about like 10%, maybe 15% of the whole channel community. But uh, that's how like Chris and I have been successful in growing, you know, um, startup business 
you know, and going into the millions within the first year is like you get into the first POC, maybe that one doesn't hit, but maybe the second one does, but we keep learning. We're all learning. So, so I think it's really important that, you know, you guys find those teams and build those relationships. And I, and I hope it's even with my competition. I don't care what I, I just want great ideas to go through the channel more in a more transformative, what, to me, what the channel is supposed to be, which is supposed to be the customer's advocate, and we're bringing you guys in to educate them, keep them relevant, and in the process, you know, access, you know, to to great people and ideas. Yeah, and win on the strength of your technology, right? I mean, and and I think you're the big thing is it's got to be reciprocal. Everything's got to be reciprocal. Everybody's got to have get something out of the relationship, right? Maybe it's 10%, but if you can get 10% of, mm-hmm. let's say, just the enterprise IT reseller community be, to be advocating for your products, that's probably all that you need because no one sales team has just one customer, right? And, right. and you don't have to build a $10 billion company on the first day, right? right. You know, Five years from now, I'll have my channel team on here and they'll be talking to you about all the you know fancy programs and the cars that we're giving away. But today, <laughs> it's still very mercenary. Uh, And we look at it, and actually one of the interesting campaigns that we're running right now is, we're just about to start running, is um, one where we we look at uh, the named accounts that are being managed by like the the two and three and four letter companies and saying, okay, what if we just went after those? Because remember, we're selling big systems. And what if we've redirected that business back through the channel? Like, how could that benefit you? And and so that's being received really well because you know there there's a funny relationship that these resellers have with their their kind of like their their big box masters which is like you can sell here but you can't sell here and we just want our reseller partners to be able to sell anywhere and we want them to be happy with us. Yeah, and you yeah. you guys are doing so you know you guys are hiring great people in the field and I you know Chris alluded to that before too and it's just so important you know we and you talked about culture. I know you guys got hooked up with Mendoza on your board. I mean, that's just a killer move. Yeah, that's right. pure culture right yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, that's just <laughs> like your chief culture officer. Um, but, you know, you, you guys are, are are hiring people that I've known for a long time. And that it's immediate trust. You know, it's just immediate. Yep. This guy knows what he's doing. He respects me. I respect him. He understands it's not a zero-sum game. You know, it, it becomes on-the-job training. You just, you, you can see the mechanics of how we transact and, you learn quickly what what resonates and what doesn't, and then you repeat the good stuff. If you were to yeah. pick one reason why your customers keep coming back to Vast, what would it oh. be? So we, we actually just did this soul searching. We went and asked a bunch of our customers, like, you know, we have a customer that's bought from us 10 times in less than 16 months. Like, why did you do that? Yeah. And um, the answer is pretty consistent, and it's not ever what we expected. Because mm. you know what we talk about all day long is all this crazy innovation that we have to blur the lines between capacity and performance. And the answer that's coming back is it's just simple and scalable. And what does that mean? Well, it works. It doesn't require a lot of time and attention, and they don't really worry about hitting a wall at some point in the future. Because they know, A, it's fast, it's, it's all flash, and B, we have this new scalability architecture that can take them to exabytes if they want to. And so when they think about it, it's like, okay, it's future-proofed. And so, you know, the number one thing that we're doing is like taking away trouble tickets and taking the administration burden off of a, an administrator's hands and saying, no, we, we've got this, we'll, we'll remotely manage this for you. And, and once storage becomes simple, not only is the architecture 
kind of fundamentally competitive to anything that you can find on-prem or in the cloud. Uh, but it's also something where it's no more difficult than just swiping a credit card. And that's ultimately what we're aiming at. And, and, and to that end, being able to kind of like fund the customer motion with a team of really skilled support individuals is so important. And you should over-support your customers, particularly in the early days, because those are all your initial references that you build your successive layers yeah. of generations of customers yeah. on. Yep. They need to love you. Yeah. So tell me what's next for Vast Data. So uh, it's it's interesting that you know we 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 think in two diff- different dimensions. One is uh, we're very much in the mode of of kind of uh, performing feature catch up. Uh, we, we're a big believer in this idea that it's impossible to re-architect uh, a storage system once the foundational architecture has been laid down. It's really easy to layer features on top of a next generation architecture. And so that's what we're doing, right? So for example, Sandesh, you just mentioned uh, replication. We happen to be shipping native replication as of version 3.6, which is just shipping. Uh, and you know that couples with all sorts of fancy enterprise features like encryption and snapshots and all sorts of different security features. But we'll continue to do that as time goes on for the next couple of years. But then there's another path that we think down. Uh, And this is a path where we start to look at what's the advantage of having a massively distributed and wickedly affordable uh, all-flash system. And um, I don't know if you guys know an an investor. I don't think they're really a VC. They're a public market investor called ARC Capital. It's run by Kathy Wood. Okay. Ever hear of them? I've heard of them. I I don't know anything about them, though. So they're they're really strong in uh, like internet and modern infrastructure investment. And ARC uh, just ran a report a few months ago. And the report said that if you think about the the GDP created in the world from the internet, if you look at the opportunity that will arise from deep learning, the AI movement will create more GDP worldwide than even the internet has. Mm. And so um, this is something that we suspected. And if you remember that, that, um, that story I told about my first day giving a presentation to the board, the last slide of that board deck was, was about deep learning. And I mm-hmm. said, okay, this could be the catalyst. Um, and so as we think about the next 10 to 20 years of computing, what we think of is there's going to be a, a really big difference between the last 10 to 20 years of computing uh, and if everybody in the IT industry today is talking about something called digital transformation, that's basically like taking a human and adapting their processes to work with computers. But the next 10 to 20 years will be around the rise of AI and what we call either analog or natural data computing, where the processors and the algorithms will now start to adapt themselves to the way that humans work. The simplest example of this is like self-driving cars where they're just working alongside humans. Um, But robotics and artificial intelligence, uh, I think we can kind of universally see will be the wave of the future. And there's so much opportunity for a company like Vast that's growing fast, well-capitalized and ambitious and, and willing to look beyond just the storage opportunity and say, how can we synthesize this data and make it ready for the next generation of computing? And so I can't tell you exactly what we're doing there, but what you see from VAST today is just the first act in a five-act play uh, that will be unfolding over the next 16 months or so. Well, I got to say, I'm excited to see where you guys go. It's, it's, a, it's a cool and interesting concept. And, and I think, um, you know, there's so much opportunity, as, as you point out. And uh, I just want to thank you for, you know, being on and, and, you know, sharing some of your 
startup wisdom with us. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great information for anybody who's you know, trying to build a company, I'm sure. I should have a safe harbor statement that says, you know, uh, I am not bound to any of the statements that I made or something like that. But no, I, I really appreciate you guys having me on and, and uh, thanks for the support and, and thanks for the questions. Yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, it's a cool concept, cool company, and we're looking forward to watching you grow. Thanks so much. Thanks for watching. I'd love to hear from you in the comments. Let me know what you'd like us to cover. And if you like what you saw, please click that like button. Hit that subscribe button because that helps the channel a ton. And if you want to get notified when we post new content, click on the bell icon. You'll get those notifications. And I will see you in the next video.